Good morning. We're continuing in our series of messages today from the Gospel of John. I've titled the series, The Message Became Flesh. We've had a powerful reminder this year of the way the kings and mighty people of this earth like to conduct themselves. I know you, like me, are bone-weary with it all. Uh, Tyrants and despots who rise up and feel compelled to impose themselves on the rest of the world. And then all the bickering and fighting about how we should deal with it and whether we should do this or that and who's doing the right thing and who isn't. And of course, there's all the people on the ground suffering and all the lives being lost needlessly. It's this constant pattern with us human beings, isn't it? We're just can't seem to get past it. Today we're going to talk about a different kind of king. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, a different kind of kingdom. And I've titled the message today, The Arrival of a Strange King. Let's go ahead and get started. Verse 12, we're in uh, John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19. Let's start reading in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, having heard that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, took palm tree branches and went out to meet him and were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We follow up on what we were looking at last week, that intimate dinner. Well, I don't know how many people were there. I know at least Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there and Uh, From the other Gospels, they were in the home of Simon the leper. Uh, I'm not sure who all was there, but that we saw last week that wonderful moment of devotion illustrated by Mary as she brought her most precious treasure and just poured it out on Jesus and worked it into his feet with her hair. And that how Jesus defended that devotion, all of that is, is what leads us to the next Thing. And John tells us that it's the very next day after that dinner, the very next day that Jesus enters Jerusalem and he is received by a loud, large crowd that had come to the feast. Now, at this time in the first century, the population in Jerusalem would be around 100,000. But for the major feasts, the three major feasts, Passover being one of them, these that every Jewish male, according to the law of Moses, was uh, obligated to attend in Jerusalem in person, the population of the city would rise to about a million, about ten times its normal uh, size. So when he says there's a large crowd uh, come to the feast, they hear that Jesus is coming and they run out to meet him, it could have been a very large crowd we're talking about here. And they take palm tree branches. Other gospel writers just tell us that they take tree branches. But John points out that they're, they're using palm tree branches. Um, and some people say that at this time of the year they would have need to bring them up from, from uh, Jericho. 
Um, but why palm tree branches? Well, uh, in the past hundred years leading up to this event, the Jews had gone through some uh, revolts and some fighting uh, under the Maccabees, uh, the Hasmonean dynasty, and uh, they had been oppressed by a ruler whose headquarters were in Syria, and this guy, Antiochus IV, who uh, gave himself the title, the illustrious one, Epiphanes, uh, he uh, finally got fed up with the Jews and outlawed the Jewish religion. He forbade circumcision, Sabbath observance, and tried to destroy every copy of the books of Scripture that the Hebrews had that he could get his hands on. So this led to the revolt of the Maccabees, and they succeeded in finally uh, getting the upper hand and expelling this uh, foreign king from over them. For about 40 years, they managed to hold on to independence until the Romans came in. And, of course, we know how that goes. They, they're under the Romans at the time that Jesus uh, is there and from the moment of his birth uh, through his whole earthly life. Uh, the Romans have been in charge. But during this period of the Maccabean Revolt, the palm tree branch uh, came to be a symbol for Jewish nationalism. And it was, it was a symbol not only of the Jewish national pride, but also of their messianic hopes that God would bring the king who would set things right and finally vindicate them and finally rescue them from all these predatory foreign oppressive forces that they have been subject to for centuries now. So that's all in the background of what's happening here. They grab these palm tree branches and they use them to meet him. And they quote from Psalm 108 this psalm is a messianic psalm in which God promises that he's going to establish a way of righteousness. He is going to establish a path through which things can be brought back to right. And he's going to do that by establishing a precious cornerstone. And God warns in this psalm that the builders are going to reject the stone, but God doesn't care. It's his chosen stone, and he is going to use it to establish this way of righteousness. Clearly, the New Testament interprets this whole psalm for us and applies it to Jesus. Jesus is that cornerstone rejected by the builders, by the religious authorities of his day, as John has made so evident in his gospel. And yet God establishes him as the way of righteousness. So they're quoting from this psalm and they choose this passage that's an, an acclamation of receiving the king. Hosanna. That word in Hebrew and it's, it goes straight into Aramaic, they're sister languages. Uh, Hosanna means save us. It's a cry for salvation. By the first century, that word had come to become a word, an expression of praise. And people would cry it out to God as an expression of trust that God will save us. God will rescue us, will redeem us. And it is an expression of trust in God. Hosanna. Save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus 
in the Gospel of John repeatedly over and over and over again has been telling anyone and everyone that he hasn't just popped up here on the scene of earthly and worldly affairs of his own accord, but that he was sent by the Father. That God the Father has sent him. He is the one coming into the cosmos, sent by the Father. He is very much the one coming in the name of the Lord, the one coming in the name of Yahweh. And they add something that's not in Psalm 108. Even the king of Israel, they express their hopes that Jesus is coming to uh, vindicate the people of Israel and make right all that is wrong. They are desperate, looking for God to send his king to make things right. And this is their expression of hope as Jesus comes into the city. They go out to meet him and they express to him their hope, their longing for deliverance. I wonder as you think of Jerusalem and all the Jews who had flocked to Jerusalem for the feast from all over the world and their reception of Jesus with great expectation as God's promised King and Messiah. I'd like to ask you to ponder for a moment. What expectations do you have when you approach God? What are you expecting from God? Let's keep reading verse 14. Now Jesus, having found a young donkey, sat upon it, as has been written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on the colt of a donkey. Jesus finds a young donkey, a baby donkey, and sits on it to ride into town. The other Gospels tell us there's more involved. He sends disciples to get it, and they retrieve it following his instructions and all that. But John just goes straight to the salient details. He uh, finds this young donkey, and he sits on it, and he rides in. And he said, John tells us that this is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah had said, uh, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Look! Your king is coming, sitting on the colt of a donkey. Now, John has quoted that. He, he changed the beginning, fear not, instead of rejoice, uh, because perhaps he's trying to uh, express to the Jewish people and their, uh, their fear of all these terrible forces at work around them. Fear not. Daughter of Zion, Zion is a poetic way of referencing the city of Jerusalem. Daughter of Zion is a poetic way of speaking of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those who live in Jerusalem. It's very clear that this is where Jesus is arriving, doing exactly what Zechariah was saying. He is riding into Zion, into Jerusalem. And he is doing so riding on the colt of a donkey. Jesus deliberately chose to announce himself as Messiah and King in the most humble way possible. And in the divine plan of all of this, it wasn't a last-minute decision on Jesus' part. It is something God announced centuries earlier through Zechariah, his prophet. God wanted us to know before the Messiah ever came that we need to look for a very different kind of Messiah, a very different kind of king. 
And when he rides into town announcing his kingship, he's going to do so riding on a baby donkey. I would guess that's about as small an animal as you can get that can handle the weight of a grown man. I don't think you can get any humbler than that. Not just a donkey. Donkeys are already smaller than horses. But a baby donkey. Wobbly. He, 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 he rides in on a, a young donkey. Not full grown. Now the Caesars, when they marched into town, they often did so after conquering some nation and they would first parade in all of their prisoners of war stripped naked and have them marching out in front these are the slaves we have conquered and then behind them they would send out all of the choicest loot and plunder that they had taken from this nation the most precious valuable things this whole nation had they would parade it down the streets of Rome saying we have taken all of this wealth from this nation and behind would ride the Caesar on his white war horse wearing the diadem of uh, rulership and he would be flanked and followed by his army, which is the way he had done all of this. And it was a clear communication to the world of power of this king to impose his will on anyone and everyone he wanted to. So you had better bend the knee. That's not how the king of kings and lord of lords rode into his city. He rode in on a baby donkey. No armies. No conquered peoples paraded before him. No plunder from other nations to announce his great wealth. He didn't even own that donkey. That is how he announced himself as Messiah and King. He chose to do so humbly. He didn't have to. Jesus is God Almighty. He could have just showed up anywhere on earth and shown his full glory to the whole human race and forced every single person to fall on their knees before him. He could have bent every person's will to his own will. He has the power to do that, but he didn't. He chose to come humbly in what we would interpret as a display of weakness. It's one of our big mistakes. We think humility is weakness. We think if you're not arrogant, if you're not imposing yourself on others, you're weak. Let me tell you something. There's nobody stronger than God and there's nobody humbler than God our, our whole understanding is so corrupt and so twisted God, God's king arrives riding on a baby donkey no armies when have you felt like God didn't show up in your life the way you expected him to 
Let's keep reading verse 16. His disciples did not realize these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. John quotes that passage from Zechariah right then because that's the appropriate moment to point out this is exactly what the prophet Zechariah said was going to happen. But then he has this little uh, statement of, of confession. But guys... None of us, his disciples, those of us who had left behind our jobs, our families, and had spent three years traveling everywhere with him, learning at his feet, we didn't get it. We didn't even realize as it was happening that this is exactly what the prophets had said was going to happen. No doubt they were familiar with Zechariah. I think they just dismissed it. It didn't fit the picture of what they were looking for. Let me tell you how uh, people were teaching about the Messiah at this time. The Messiah was going to come. We call him son of David, so uh, that means he's going to be somebody like David. And David was the greatest warrior king Israel ever had. He was the only king Israel had that was able to subdue every single nation around them and establish such a degree of dominance that when his son rose to the throne, he never had to fight a war. Uh, he, he had peace on every side and Israel enjoyed great prosperity under Solomon because David had subdued every enemy. So this is the teaching. The Messiah will come and then Rome will get it. They'll get back, they'll, God will pay them back for all the abuse they have visited upon us. And then Shu will be on the other foot. We Jews will be in charge. We'll be running the world. And we'll do it right. We will definitely observe Sabbath. And we will make everybody get circumcised. And we will impose this the world over. The Jewish religion will be the religion of the world. The wicked will be destroyed, and only those like us will remain. Jesus had a lot of work uh, retraining his disciples. We know from the other Gospels that even as they're approaching Jerusalem right now, and Jesus along the way in the other Gospels, he's telling them the whole time, listen, we're going to Jerusalem. When I get there, they're going to kill me. I'm going to be crucified. He tells them three times on the road. It never registers. When it happens, they're still stunned. And as he's talking about sacrifice and about redeeming humankind by giving his life, you know what the disciples are doing on the road? They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they're all trying to manipulate the situation so that they claim it first. It's like a shotgun, right? Who gets to sit on your right hand and your left hand, Jesus? I ask first. James and John even send their mom to ask him. Would you put my two boys on either side of you once you come into your kingdom? And when every time Jesus hears this nonsense, he tells them, guys, that's how the world does things. 
the mighty on earth, they impose their will on others. That's not the way it's going to be with you guys. You want to be truly great? Your aspiration must be to be the slave of everyone. That is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus has been teaching and trying to disabuse his disciples of this false version of Messiah. But they don't get it until after it's all said and done. It's not till after the cross that they look back and say, oh, wow, there it was all along. We're told in Luke 24, 27, that Jesus himself encountered two disciples on the road to Emmaus and that he opened the scriptures up to them and allowed them to see how all the scriptures were about him. After Jesus dies, and is buried and rises victorious over sin and death and ultimately ascends back to the right hand of the Father. After all of this, the disciples go back to the Scriptures and all of a sudden it starts to make sense in ways they had never understood before. Because this king is very different from what they had been told he was going to be. He never established armies. He never established an earthly throne. And yet he established a kingdom that is greater than any kingdom the world has ever known. You know what? It is not bound by the laws and governance of any nation on earth. It is not contained by the boundaries of any national border. And there is no human authority on earth that is able to impose itself on this kingdom because its only king is Jesus. But that was a kind of Messiah and king nobody was looking for. It's not till afterwards. You know what they say, hindsight is twenty-twenty. Looking back, it's clear as day. At the moment, they didn't catch it. It's only later that the disciples realized Jesus was fulfilling exactly what God had promised. Think about your own life. How have you allowed your expectations to prevent you from seeing what God is actually up to? I would suggest that this kind of thing keeps happening to us today. Verse 17, so the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead was bearing witness. It was also because of this that the crowd met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. So in addition to all the people there, all the hubbub, there's a crowd in Jerusalem, a core group of people who happened to be present when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And they are bearing witness. I love that. That's a huge term in John's gospel. It's a huge term in Revelation. Uh, And what I love about bearing witness is that it's something only somebody who is personally involved can give. I cannot bear witness to you about the situation in Ukraine. I have never been there. I can research 
and give you information that I hope is accurate about what's going on and what the nature of the nation is and all this. I can share information, but we are not called to share information about Jesus. We are called to bear witness to Jesus. What these people are doing is they are sharing what they have encountered personally of Jesus. They saw Jesus call that man four days dead, sealed in a tomb. They saw him call him out, and they saw the dead man answer. He got up and waddled out of there. And Jesus casually says, cut him loose. They had witnessed firsthand Jesus' power over life itself. You want to talk power? There is no one but God who has that power. No one. To take something cold and dead and say, I don't think so. Get up. The breath of life belongs to God alone. They are witnesses to that. And and John says it's also because of this that people are flocking to see him because they have heard that this is the one who has power over life itself. Surely he can save us. This crowd who's witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead are eager to witness to his power. And I want to ask you, how are you an eager witness to the power of Jesus that you have experienced firsthand. Let's finish verse 19. Therefore the Pharisees said to one another, You can see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Seems like in all of John's stories, we end the story by coming back to the religious leadership and their obstinate refusal to turn to Jesus in faith. The whole city is celebrating the Messiah. They want nothing to do with all of this. Now the Pharisees in particular were the group of religious leaders whose area of expertise was the Bible. They were the experts on Scripture. And they had not only memorized Scripture very carefully and meticulously, but they had memorized the teachings of rabbis from centuries past. And they were like a walking encyclopedia of biblical knowledge. That was their area of expertise. If you wanted to know not just what the Bible says, but what it means, they were the you went to. The problem is that when Jesus showed up, It seems like at every turn he was embarrassing these guys and pointing out how their teachings were off. They had missed the point. That would have been the moment for them to say, you know what, you're absolutely right. I can't believe I was teaching that. They could have said, Jesus, teach us to do it better. But pride set in. They were more interested in Jesus bowing to them than in recognizing the King of kings and Lord of lords. So they rejected Jesus and they said, yeah, I don't know what all these people are talking about, but this is not the Messiah I signed up for. 
This is not the king of kings I signed up for. He's got to look a lot more like a warrior king. He's got to look a lot more like David on his, on his horse and wielding his sword. They're so frustrated because it's not enough for them to just reject Jesus. They have to get rid of him. They're do, they've already committed to kill him. They're, they're, they've intimidated everyone they can. They've told people, if you uh, acclaim Jesus as Messiah, we're going to kick you out of synagogue, which was the heartbeat of Jewish communal life. You would be basically ostracized. They have already, as the Passover is approaching, they've already put out word. If you find out where Jesus is, tell us. We need to arrest him. They've done everything they can to get people to not turn to Jesus, and yet here they are. I think to this day we have people like this who are so offended at Jesus, the very thought of him being king, the very thought of him being right, and them being wrong. It fills them with rage. And they will do everything they can to get rid of Jesus. And they will declare God dead. And they will say, Jesus is a big fabrication. The disciples made it all up. And they very proudly publish their books in which they think they have demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is a big fraud and nobody needs to believe in him. But guess what? People still do. The world still turns to him. You know why? Because he is the one savior of the world. He's the only one that works. And people have been discovering this for 2,000 years. You can foam at the mouth all you want. You can be upset about it and wish that you could erase the name of Jesus from history. But you're wasting your time. The reason people still turn to him the world over, the reason we have people in Ukraine praying to Jesus right now, the reason we have family members in every corner of the globe, it seems, is because he is the Messiah God promised. He is the Savior of the world, of the cosmos. You can foam at the mouth all you want. This is the Savior. Pharisees were frustrated. So many people were flocking to Jesus. I'd like you to consider a minute, think, why did this frustrate them so much? Have you ever bought into that kind of frustration? Have you ever been frustrated by other people and their devotion to Jesus? We're looking for a Savior. We're about to get on this horrid merry-go-round of another election cycle. And uh, I tell you, it, it's draining all the accusations back and forth and the attempts to discredit and self-promote and everything about it is just ugly. 
There's no humility, there's no simplicity, there's no honesty in the whole process. I feel like every time we go to the ballot box, we're trying to choose the lesser evil. But we're still looking, right? People get so worked up because they think this is the guy, this is the woman, this is the person who is going to save us, who's going to finally make this nation wonderful. It's going to fix every problem and it's going to bring us back from the brink. There's no human being that can do that. We turn to people like Oprah for advice on the deeper meaning of our human lives. Maybe she can unravel it all for us. But we're all tainted by the same problem. And this is the root of our problem, of our personally experienced oppression. We would love to externalize it all, but let me tell you, the biggest problem we have about oppression in life is that sin is right in here. And there's no greater tyrant than me under the power of sin. I will absolutely wreck my life. And I will do it mercilessly and with all cruelty. I will lay waste to every precious thing in my life because sin has power over me. And I try to blame the outside, but that's not where my real power problem lies. Here's the good news. God sent us the Savior we needed. It may not be the Savior we wanted. We may have problems with how he is actually running the cosmos, which, by the way, he is, and how he is actually running the nations of this world, which he actually is. Either that or the Scriptures are lying. We may not agree. It may not be the kind of Savior we think we need. But you know what? He is exactly the Savior we need. Exactly. God didn't miss it at all. And our our difficult task is to disabuse ourselves of our false expectations and grab on to the Savior God sent us because he's the one we need. Let me warn you, Christians, as we head into this election cycle, there is no politician who is going to save us. Don't ever talk like he is. That is idolatry. There is one Savior, and we already know him. And Thankfully, he has already announced his kingship and is already in control. And he's working on breaking each of us free from the tyranny of sin and death. I guess the only question this morning is, have you acclaimed Jesus as your Savior? Have you cried out Hosanna to him? Have you received him as your king? Whatever that means, even if he's not the king you thought you needed. Are you ready to be his vassal? 
Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to us. We're so messed up in so many ways and so confused and our grasp is so limited and so twisted to begin with. It's almost impossible to ever get anything right. But you know, you see with perfect clarity. You know exactly what this world needs. Thank you for coming to give us exactly what was needed. Help us, Lord, to stop trusting in ourselves and to start trusting in you. Help us to embrace who you are, King of kings, Lord of lords, and that your kingdom is going to rule the universe in a way completely contrary to the way we rule anything. Help us to surrender to that in our own lives, to surrender to your kingship and to your brand of rulership. We love you, Jesus. We can't end today without remembering those in Ukraine who are suffering. We know we have brothers and sisters there who are serving, and it's a shining moment for you. People are, are, being, uh, be, are receiving witness uh, to who you are, and I thank you so much for that opportunity, but I pray for everyone all those, the aggressors, the defending, the people defending, the, the hatred and the bitterness and the loss and the suffering that is being visited on so many right now. Lord Jesus, we pray for mercy. We pray for reprieve. We pray for peace. And Lord, we don't know. We don't have the first clue how to accomplish that. But we know that you our king and we place this in your hands and pray that you work in all of this so that the greatest possible number of people will turn away from sin and death and to you to find life we love you jesus it's in your name we pray